0: Thanks for tuning in to Charlottesville Soundboard. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every other Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. The theme of our episode this week is community. First, we'll be discussing a new film titled Raised. It's a documentary by local filmmaker Lorenzo Dickerson about the vibrant life and later destruction of Vinegar Hill. A historically black neighborhood in downtown Charlottesville. And coming up after that, we're talking compost and climate change with the Community Climate Collaborative. I'm gonna hand things over to Sarah Howarth for her interview with filmmaker Lorenzo Dickerson and Jordy Yeager.
1: I'm Lorenzo Dickerson, local filmmaker in Charlottesville and co-writer director on the documentary Film Raised.
2: I'm Jordy Yeager, also from Charlottesville and a journalist. I'm a fellow at the African American Heritage Center at the Jefferson School and co writer, co director on Raised.
3: Could you both speak a little to your film backgrounds and artistic interests?
1: So, my company, Town Media, we do documentary films primarily on African American history and culture in Charlottesville and, and Virginia. So, we're eight, nine films in now, films that range from sports, education, incarceration, and various different topics, uh, typically historically based. Yeah,
2: and I am a, I'm not a filmmaker, but I am avid film watching, primarily Lorenzo Dickerson's films and <laughs> the Town production catalog. But no, seriously, I've, I've just been appreciative of Lorenzo's work for as long as, pretty much as long as he's been making it. And so we started partnering on projects probably about five years ago. You know, Lorenzo's also an amazing photographer. And so I like to write a lot. And he's, he's an amazing visual artist. And so we started collaborating on how we could use our skill sets to tell stories. And that's really where our partnership began.
3: Can you tell me a little bit about RAISED for people who don't know about it already?
1: RAISED tells the story of the federal urban renewal program throughout America, but through the lens of Charlottesville's former Vinegar Hill neighborhood. In this film, we we really talk about the extensive life, the almost 100 years of of Black life uh, that occurred in Vinegar Hill. And then also we get into the nuts and bolts behind its destruction and, and how that happened. Um, but we don't just stay in Charlottesville. We also show you the Haytai neighborhood in Durham, North Carolina, which similar story, but on a much larger scale. The main reason that we do that really is to show you that urban renewal occurred all throughout America in over 600 small towns and, and large cities, um, Durham being another one of them.
3: For people who maybe haven't heard the term before, what is urban renewal and what effect can it have on people?
2: Urban renewal really comes out of uh, the U.S. Housing Act of 1949 is, is what we learned through the production of the film. Um, just talking to people that that are really experts in studying this and how it was carried out and how it how it grew, and so the U.S. Housing Act of 1949 uh, really finds its uh, terminology wedded to slums and blightedness of neighborhoods. So these are characterizations of the quality or or the state of uh, neighborhoods all throughout the country. Um, as deemed by the the US federal government and and then localities so this it's a, a very expansive and sweeping program it goes as far away as Alaska to the deep south to the northeast and New England Boston um, you know there really isn't a place in America that isn't touched by this and so um, I think in total more than 600 municipalities enact, Uh, the urban renewal program over the span of its lifetime. Um, And so it displaces more than a million people, um, the vast majority of whom are are African American. Um, And so the terminology shifts around 1954 uh, from being kind of urban redevelopment in its original incarnation to urban renewal. Um, And what was really interesting for Lorenzo and I in making this was that you know, there was, there was a lot of attention by families that were impacted by urban renewal to that renew part of that, that, those two words. Um, and the failure to renew that by and large, and we can talk about this more, but th- those properties that were raised and destroyed ended up just being parking lots in a lot of cases. Um, and so there wasn't a, a renewal effort. The businesses that were displaced that um, were either forced to relocate or shutter altogether were never brought back, right? So there wasn't a renewal in that sense um those, those spaces were very infrequently built on as further residential areas as well. Only just now, this neighborhood in uh, in Durham, North Carolina, Hayti is just starting to build high-rise sort of residential units, the bulk of which are, are you know, priced at price points that are unaffordable for most folks. And so uh, what does that renewal portion mean uh, was a real central key kind of question that we kept on asking and, and being asked uh, of ourselves as we made the film too.
1: The initial thought, as Jordy was mentioning, is that you would demolish these areas and then you would bring in new business, bigger business. You know, it was, it was done you know, with the idea of bringing in commerce, um, but that wasn't always as easy as it was said. So that's how you end up with these areas that stayed as virtually parking lots for a number of years um, before anything ever came in to that space.
3: How did the idea for making a film about urban renewal kind of get started initially?
1: I think it started with this push-pull, really, between, you know, Jordan and I both growing up here and what we've heard of Vinegar Hill growing up versus what we've learned about it in recent years and the the narrative that we've heard about it so frequently in recent years, which is typically about the destruction of the neighborhood only. So I think, you know, this idea before we even started working with, with VPM as a partner on this project, Jordy and I had kicked around this idea of telling this story that was really more inclusive of telling the story of the life of the people that lived there um, and really digging deep into what that narrative truly is and how do we you know best represent the folks that, that lived and grew up and owned businesses in the neighborhood. Yeah, we we just felt that that was so key
2: in terms of understanding, you know, Charlottesville is a very historically minded place, right? We we put all these elements of history on our public insignias and our holidays. And I mean, it's, it's a bedrock of tourism. Like it is why, what people a lot of times think of in terms of, of of Charlottesville when they think of it. And so, you know, to not have that firm understanding of a hundred years of like one of the most central and vibrant parts of Charlottesville's history that was the, the epicenter of African-American life for, for many of those years, just felt like a huge gap. To Lorenzo's point, you know, when it was talked about, it was talked about in terms of its destruction, in terms of its raising, which is an important story to tell. And so we we needed to tell that more fully and more deeply, as Lorenzo said, but it's really, you know, how do you tell that, that first century of life as it existed there? in a way that, you know, allows people to see themselves and and also their surrounding community in that history. That I think, you know, most of Lorenzo's projects and films are historically minded. And um, with that goal of trying to represent that history in in the flesh today, right? To make it visible. Um, and so that was really important. That's always kind of been a part of our conversation in terms of like, how can we do this in a way that, that really brings
1: it out for people?
3: And what was Vinegar Hill like before it was destroyed?
1: Wow. I mean, if you if you listen to the folks that lived there and grew up there, honestly it sounds like an amazing place. Where neighbors knew each other and took care of one another. Borrowed sugar, you know, from one another from across the street. You know, you hear about going to school and going to the store, going to inges. You know, you really in this film, not only do you get to hear about what it was like, but you can taste it. You can smell it. You can feel the neighborhood. And that's one of the things we really wanted to focus on. You know, growing up here in the area, I have a great uncle that we grew up in the county. i in Alarmar County and I have a great uncle that would always tell stories about going to Vinegar Hill and going to the pool hall and going to the store and stuff like that. But, you know, like like I mentioned, within the last five years, when I see stories, when I hear people talk about it, all I hear about is the destruction. And those two things didn't really mesh well with me. I'm like, OK, that's all I'm hearing now. But when I was a kid, you know, you'd hear these bits and pieces of great stuff. It sounds, you know, really interesting to be there. And that's one thing that we really wanted to pull out and make sure that we included in this film was for you to really understand the life. And that's the bulk of the beginning of the film is to bring you into the neighborhood yeah it was i mean we quite often we'd be filming and just be very very hungry because
2: of you know like they were talking about the ginger snaps and like just how rich they were at Inge's store which is you know that building that's tavern and grocery now on the corner of fourth street and west main street you know that was the neighborhood store from 1891 to 1970s you know like like lorenzo was saying it was a, a community that looked out for each other so they had you know whole accounts for families all throughout that that those neighborhoods uh or the streets behind there for which they could you know at, at the end of the month when they got paid they'd settle up so it wasn't like a cash transaction only sort of place it, it was very much kind of that family orientation around it so they looked out for one another in that way but yeah I mean they, one of our interviewees Clara Tompkins Jameson describes going from house to house during the holidays and you know the smell of, of collard greens and ham and I mean. It was just it was pervasive everywhere you went there was just food and you know there were gardens and and then there were sounds as long as you said like you know the blue diamond the, the nightclub the pool hall like you said but but also kind of inside the homes that you know Duke Ellington and, and you know Cab Calloway and all of these different artists were being played on record players and um and performed too you know there were, there were actual musicians that lived in the neighborhood but yeah. And then, and then the school is right across the street. You know, Jefferson School is right there on 4th Street. And so really from the arc of when you're born to when you pass away, you know, there's a funeral home there. Um, so you could spend your whole entire life in Vinegar Hill and never want for anything more you know, these are businesses, these are social clubs, these are benevolent organizations, these are political organizations, you know, everything was there. Um, And so, you know, as Ivan Orr, who was our composer for the film said that
1: it was, it was really quite self-sufficient and and insulated in many respects. I think one of my favorite quotes actually is with Clara Tompkins Jameson in, in the film, where she says, we didn't have a lot, but our parents took care of us. Mr. Inge took care of us. And I just, I love that quote because it, it says it very bluntly that, you know, one, our parents took care of us. That, you know, we were taken care of, but also Mr. Inge, the neighborhood, took care of us. It was a collective effort, and everyone was, was really close with one another.
3: Wow. Yeah. Even listening to you both just talk about the film really puts you in what it could have been like in Vinegar Hill. Just the descriptions of the food and the smells and the music is incredible. And it's really nice and important that people will get to learn about that as well as the destruction, which is what you mainly hear about if you do hear about Vinegar Hill, like you said before. And you already mentioned this a little bit, but what was it like working on the creation of the film?
1: I think the really cool thing was the connections that we made. I mean, we really enjoyed sitting down because that's what we do and that's what we enjoy anyway, sitting down with, you know, elders in the community and just listening to these stories. You know, we would we would do it all day just because. But I think the the amazing connections that we made between people just in the process of finding folks for interviews and that sort of thing, connecting with the two gentlemen That we have in the film that were UVA students at the time. And they were a part of a group that in 1980, a group of students conducted interviews, audio interviews with folks that lived in, that once lived in Vinegar Hill. And we were able to bring those audio interviews, some of them, into the film. So you can hear some of those as well. But we were able to connect with those two students today. So you'll, you know, you hear their 1980 interview, but then you'll see them present day. And connecting with them was was pretty cool. Um, Ivan Glasgow, I've known his family ever since I was a kid. So as we're looking, you know, through the names of these students from 1980, I'm like, maybe that's the same family. And it just so happens to be. And then the other gentleman, Milton Carpenter, um, he lives in North Carolina now. So when we went down there to film in Durham, the Hayti neighborhood, we went to Raleigh, uh, filmed him in the same day. So a lot of these connections were just it was really interesting. And and when we had the premiere the other night, it was really cool to see lots of lots of folks all together there in, in one space. One of our interviewees towards the end of the film is a guy named Waki
2: Win. He's another local, and he didn't know that his family had property in Vinegar Hill. And it was only, you know, it's through our records and, and kind of research that we were able to show him not only where it was, but what it looked like and and show him the records that indicated his grandparents owned it. And and he matched our records with family photographs and said, you know, well, here they are getting married and here. You know, so it was just this kind of he, he himself is a realtor. And so to have that, you know, how he sees the world is through property, is through land. And so to be able to then tie that personal story to this this larger story story in Charlottesville and throughout the country was, I think it was really important for him, but it really captivated that whole experience for us too, of just seeing the power of, of this sort of storytelling and, and research that, that can be. It was also tricky just navigating COVID, you know, that these were, this was still that time period. We started, I think, really filming more than a year, almost a year and a half ago, you know, so this was a period where people weren't very comfortable taking off masks, even in very isolated sort of circumstances. And so we had to be respectful of that and just kind of bide our time in terms of when people did feel comfortable, you know, because we wanted to show the the full scope of who that person was, and not, not necessarily hide behind a mask. And so, navigating that was was always a little bit, you know, always present in our minds. Yeah, I mean, everybody just, you know, we would have tried to interview 40 different people, I think, if we'd had enough time. So, but we ended up, I think, interviewing a total of 16. There were a lot of moments that we had to leave out that were really precious, but I think we chose the best ones.
3: It sounds like you did a lot of research through interviewing people and actually being able to speak with them about their experiences, but how did you kind of go about doing the research for the film? And how can other people maybe learn more about Vinegar Hill and the neighborhood in North Carolina?
1: As Jordy mentioned before, he's a journalist. So, you know, Jordy really led the way with a lot of a lot of the research piece that wasn't the interview. So Jordy was combing through articles and documents and, and that sort of thing. That's his wheelhouse. So, I mean, he, he did so much of of that work. We're at the Historical Society and the, the African-American Heritage Center has some stuff as well. And it, I mean, Joy has just been going through tons of documents. As far as the the Haytide neighborhood, there are some websites out there that, that folks can go to. I think one of them is 150bulldurham.org. I think that's what it's called. What was really great, too, is just
2: going with Lorenzo, going through these oral histories that he mentioned back in the 1980s that, you know, it's hard to believe, but that's 40 years ago or 40 plus years. And so just having that moment be captured and seeing how our collective memory kind of shifts over time, that the things that they were remembering back then we don't really talk about these days in some cases, some cases we do. But so, for example, you know, one of the things that Dr. George Ferguson talks about, he's a a funeral home director and the head of the NAACP. In his interview in 1980, he's telling, I think it's Milton, right? Milton Carpenter's interviewing him. Yeah, I think it is. and he's, he's telling Milton that, you know, if you were interested in looking at who owned what properties behind the businesses, you know, in, in all that area, 4th Street, 3rd Street, William Street, Irving Street, Page Street, all of that residential section, you could go down to the courthouse and look it up. And, you know, most of those homes that were considered blighted or slummed by the city were really owned by one white family. And then the rest of the properties, the vast majority of all the rest of the properties were all owned by black families. and, And they were all, you know, if you look at the appraisals, when they went in and assessed them, you would see that the assessors found them to be the best properties in the whole neighborhood. Here he was in 1980, dropping this gem in the middle of his interview with Milton. And I think some folks knew that, but it wasn't widely understood that the case the city made for raising Vinegar Hill was based on properties that were owned by one white family and as a former mayor of Charlottesville, uh, that estate. He had passed away in 1945. And so his family that was surviving took it over, but they didn't keep up the properties, So they had leaky roofs. They didn't have insulation. They didn't have indoor plumbing. In many ways, the inferior quality assessment was correct, but who owned those properties? And then what does, by living in close proximity to it, what does that do for the rest of the neighborhood, right? So you have multi-generational African-American families that have taken care of their whole property, their whole, you know, all throughout these generations. And because of one slumlord who's renting exclusively to Black families, mind you, the whole
1: neighborhood is is raised as a result. You think about like, you know, 2022, here we are, years later, and the narrative, as Jordy mentioned, the narrative today is that, you know, Vinegar Hill was was a slum and it was blighted. And there was all these black homes that black owned homes that were that were slums and that were blighted. And that just wasn't the case. But that's a story that's been told for so long. And we hear something enough. Um, you know, we'll believe it and we'll repeat it and Until someone goes back and really does the research and digs in and says, okay, hold on, let's actually figure the nuts and bolts of this out and get the details behind it, how it worked. Now we can, you know, start to think differently and better understand what that full story actually is and and how that panned out.
3: Did you hear anything from community members that attended the screening that you'd like to share?
1: Yeah, um to think about. We've gotten a lot of comments over the last last couple of days, and there really been a lot of positive comments. People seem to really have enjoyed the film, learned a lot from the film. One person actually mentioned that she thought that the film was the best cinematic representation of of an argument for reparations that she's seen. And that's really what we hope for One of the things that we hope for in this film is that it can be a conversation starter for the the argument for reparations for families that were displaced by urban renewal. And I think we've heard from everyone
2: we interviewed, you know, not everybody was able to make it to the screening. But those who did and those who saw it have just been really, really, I think, just blown away by the way in which their story fits into a much larger story. Right. Because as an interviewee, you don't necessarily you don't sit in on the rest of those 15 interviews, so you're not really sure where that story is going, but, but everybody uh, was pleased with it and, and really excited, I think, to share it and try to get it out as much as possible. And so I think we'll do some smaller screenings throughout the region and, and maybe as far as Way as Richmond, but trying to get it into classrooms too. And so that conversation that Lorenzo mentioned about kind of where do we go from here and, and what are the long-term legacies and ramifications of this that we can still address today, you know, that that next generation starts to take on that conversation in a way that builds that future.
3: Where can people see the film? I know you said you'd be having more screenings, but I also know it's supposed to be released at some point for other viewing as well.
1: May 12th, 9pm. It'll be on VPM, which is our local PBS. So you can watch it there. After that, it will be available online on vpm.org. As well as as Jordy mentioned, we'll be doing several screenings around the area and the film will start to make its film festival run as well.
0: Once again, you can catch Raised on Virginia Public Media on May 12th at 9 p.m. And keep out an eye for future screenings in the Charlottesville community and beyond. You're listening to Charlottesville Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the university. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, protecting Virginia's air, water, and natural treasures and leading the way towards a healthy environment for all. Learn more at southernenvironment.org. Thanks for staying tuned. I'm going to hand things back to Sarah Haworth, who interviewed Terry Kent about the Make Your Own Impact program.
4: My name is Terry Kent, and I'm the director of communications at C3, the Community Climate Collaborative. And I love the outdoors. I have two grown growing kids of my own. I'm really glad to be here with you.
3: For those who aren't already familiar with the organization, what is the Community Climate Collaborative?
4: Sure. So we are a nonprofit
3: that's dedicated to local climate action
4: advocacy and action. So we work with businesses and homes and faith communities, really anyone and everyone to make sure that they see their role when it comes to climate solutions.
3: Can you tell me a little bit about the Make Your Own Impact campaign?
4: We get asked a lot, you know, what can individuals do? What can we do on climate? So what we've compiled is Um, a great guidebook. So it's a free downloadable guidebook that's uber local. So I like that aspect of it. We believe that change begins in our backyard. And so we can start in our homes, in our own lives with our sphere of influence. Um, And it's also not overwhelming. So it's, it's highly accessible. It's got 26 actions, but I'm super excited because it, The guidebook has the structure of three categories, learn it, voice it, do it. So first few actions are, okay, let's learn about my carbon footprint. Let's watch, you know, a documentary on, on plant-based diet, you know, like getting started with the learning process and even looking at the equipment in your house, you know, the energy, what's taking up energy and then voice it is the piece where we really want to push our community and our local government. And so there's advocacy, you know, where we have a downloadable letter that people can write. And then that last section is really getting into the actions of, you know, making those changes in the lifestyle. So the, and the great thing about the campaign is you don't have to do it alone. So we have built an online community, but I'm super excited because then we can start engaging with each other inside that community, because it's hard for, you know, we have a small staff, we can't be everywhere, you know, at once and be in homes. And so this is a great opportunity for us to build community. So we're going to be having online and offline events. I will just add on to that Mm -hmm. is that we've put together a list of incentives, because people can't do all these things on their own, right? Like, A lot of people don't realize that a thermostat, you can get a rebate from if you're a city gas customer, for example. And so as a part of this, once you enter the community and even on our uh, Make Your Own Impact landing page, you can find our climate action incentives. It's a list of local, state and federal incentives for these types of actions
3: what's kind of like a good starting point? What's one of the things that people can do in their everyday life to combat climate change on the individual level that's a good place to start, you would think? Yeah, that's a great question.
4: I mean, I was asked that at a a UVA class. I was given a presentation and, and he's like, what can I do today? And I asked, I said, do you compost? And he said, no. And I said, okay, let's start there. Surprisingly, composting is a big deal. You know, your food waste and your green waste at at home that you generate. But of course, you know, the emissions, can you drive less? You hear these, these statistics that are kind of hard to believe, like the average American, you know, takes eight to 10 trips in their car every day to and from places. So can you reduce your transportation footprint? And then, you know, we need to eat less meat. You know, as Americans, we love our um, our beef and like some of our other intense, carbon intense meats. And so, you know, we we're not asking everyone to become vegetarian or vegan. Like wherever you are in your journey, we want to help you. And you know, one of the things is to reduce that meat intake. And can you can you look at alternatives? So yeah, those are just a few of the the heavier hitting uh, positive impact making actions the other really interesting thing is to talk about this issue more with your friends and your family and your coworkers. We're not talking about it on a regular basis. And that's just a small and easy thing. And be—I would urge people to be solutions oriented and to be positive, you know, not gloom and doom is to really present like, there are things we can do. We've got, you know, if we band together, we've really got this. And that's why we put advocacy in there because we know we need systems change. We need better
3: policy. And so it's kind of a both and. And then like we talked about before, it can feel really daunting to start taking action against climate change. Can Mm -hmm. you share some of the ways that you like to advocate for the environment in your own life? What's your climate action plan? Like we said. Sure. So one of
4: the things I do is I I definitely am a, a storyteller, a communicator, a marketer at heart. So I will really engage it, like total strangers or like if I'm in the grocery line, that kind of thing. I'm not, I don't think I'm over over the top, but I definitely find ways to to insert, you know, what people can do or if I bring my grocery bags or I have an, e, I am leasing an EV and my neighbor said, oh, my My neighbor told me an EV was way too expensive, and I said, "Oh my gosh! You know, I I work for a nonprofit. I I was able to make it a lease work. So don't totally eliminate, you know, electric vehicle as as a a potential. You know, I did go solar a few years ago at my townhome, and a you know I compost. I'm like, I I like to think of it though as I can always do better. And so, I would say, you know, my next one is trying to be more plant-based.
0: What
3: resources will people be able to take advantage of when they join the Make Your Own Impact campaign?
4: Yeah, so far we've partnered with five businesses. I'm really excited about offering our members those discounts. So we have an electrician, a Blackbird composting provider, the two refill stores in town, High Tor Gear Exchange. So we're really excited that these businesses have offered to support our members with discounts. And then, of course, those resources, we wanted to pair the actions in the book with an easy resource. So we really, again, did that homework. We've been working on it for a couple of, of months, pretty steady. And we're really excited about all of the tools. We've got a newly to raise awareness about people's energy burden. We have an energy burden calculator on there that was actually a partnership with UVA Forge, So uh, that is an an organization that helps with software solutions at UVA. And so that was a cool partnership. And that's part of the the resources. Definitely a lot of great stuff in there. Try to make it as easy as possible for people to integrate these actions that make a difference into their daily lives.
3: Can you give me an example of a workshop that might take place with Make Your Own Uh Impact or maybe one that the Climate Collaborative has done in the past?
4: Oh my gosh, I'm so
3: glad. I can't believe I didn't mention the events. So, what one
4: thing we're doing at the end of May is we're having a meetup. So we want to have these monthly meetups so that people can again share information. It's so you know rewarding and fun to exchange like success stories, or this is what's worked and this is what hasn't worked. So we're going to be doing those monthly. Uh, Also, like a 30 minute Friday at lunchtime, we'll be doing an Ask Me Anything. So you can ask your most burning climate solution question, anything with our um, Make Your Own Impact team. So that's within Circle, the Ask Me Anything. And then, in terms of workshops, we don't have ones on the docket yet, but we want to in the fall have hands-on workshops for people. So, we had talked about at one at one point we were doing an actual like we made a, a vegetarian like it was a cooking class um or you know, energy efficiency 101 or even advocacy 101. So, we are really going to be listening in the next few months um or weeks I should say within that circle community like what do people need and want in terms of a workshop i mean we talked about green investing like divesting your bank accounts from fossil fuels i mean there's just so many really relevant and important topics that i think our community will be interested in but we we want to hear from them first
3: it sounds like Make Your Own Impact really makes combating climate change fun and interactive and like a community thing, even though it yes. is individual, which yes. is just probably so attractive to people who, you know, haven't done this stuff before and need to learn more about it first.
4: Absolutely. Yeah, I, we're really looking forward to it. And in inside there, like, it'll be fun to to see the question and answer, to see the exchange between people. I hope that there's this dialogue and it'll ignite inspiration and change on the part of, as you said, the community, create the momentum that we, that we want and need. And where can people learn more about the campaign? Yes. So if people go to theclimatecollaborative.org and forward slash M-Y-O-I. So that stands for Make Your Own Impact. So super easy, theclimatecollaborative.org forward slash M-Y-O-I.
3: Do you have anything else you want to add before we wrap up?
4: Well, I just want to say that every action counts. And again, individual action as well as systems change. We're all for it. We're here to help. And so let's do this together.
0: Well, that does it for this week's edition of Charlottesville Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name is Mary Garner McGee. Our producer is Sarah Howarth. Our theme song is "Kyoja Beat by Marin Lasco and Jay Pun. This is Charlottesville Soundboard.